Welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. The good life begins with a roof over your head, so please contact our sponsors for this podcast, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ilovecentraloregon.com to find out more. And welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast. We're here in Sisters, Oregon at the uh, School District Administration Building with Superintendent Jim Golden. Uh, he is, as, as I said, he's the superintendent. Uh, he's also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but you're a supervisor for Family Access Network. Uh, and among other things, he was uh, a bit of a surfer in the day and a beer fan and, um, and somewhat of a, a topless calendar model. But we, we will have to uh, explain that story in a little bit. That'll be a little teaser come in. Um, uh, would you like to say hello to everyone? Well, hello, and thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Jeremy. <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, letting me come in and talk to you. Um, you and I um, met and started talking about our mutual experiences in Southern California, particularly uh, the surf. Um, but we also kind of got on the subject about education. For a brief period in my time, I was a a uh, special ed teacher down in Newport Beach, uh, right on the beach. It was a very distracting place to, <laughs> to educate children. Um, but uh, we started talking about that, and, of course, our conversation just went on, and, and here we are to finish that conversation, I hope. Um, but you had mentioned that you grew up in L.A., and not the nicer parts of L.A. No, I grew up in L.A. <clears throat> I lived in uh, Santa Monica, Culver City, um, and worked in some sketchy places. I, I grew up in a single parent family. My mom, uh, we lived in an apartment. We were situationally um, poor for a couple of years till my mom met my stepdad. Uh, but yeah, so I grew up uh, running around in an apartment building with no supervision for a few years at those formative years of uh, like 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, and was a little uh, apartment hoodlum, I guess, for lack of a better word. and. Uh, and my, um, so, you know, we were part of busing. I was part of busing in junior high and high school. And then um, saw a lot of things that you would not see in Oregon at all. Just the diversity of people. Mm -hmm. and uh, both, the, both the good and bad? Both the good and the bad. Yeah, that was time. Uh, busing was, you know, it was during the 70s. So uh, that was part of uh, integration efforts by the Los Angeles Unified School District, of which I went to school uh, there from 7th till 12th grade. But um, yeah, I also worked in uh, Inglewood, which is home to the Crips. I cleaned a car dealership, uh, their grease pits. And then I also worked in Santa Fe Springs, which you drive through Compton, the home of the Bloods, to get to work. So I saw a lot of things that uh, were uh, scary and uh, certainly uh, got an idea that there's a lot of uh, good and bad in the world. And, and uh, so I wouldn't say I had a sheltered childhood like my kids have or like kids growing up in sisters. And so I, I would recommend to your listeners that to parent families and raised in a nice community is a really good thing. So in other words, you saw some things that cannot be unseen is a phrase that we used yeah. in a previous life of mine. Yeah, exactly. You've seen things that there's no, there's nothing like it here in Oregon. The closest thing was when I worked I worked with at-risk kids, uh, the most at-risk kids in the state of Oregon uh, in the 80s. And um, 
you know, saw a lot of stuff there, uh, private nonprofit uh, with uh, gangbangers and things like kids who were expelled from schools. But the closest thing we have to that in Oregon was what used to be inner northeast Portland, and now that's been gentrified. So there's really nothing like that that I know of. Uh, it's now in east, east uh, Portland has some problems with gangs and whatnot. But, yeah, growing up in L.A., it's the most, as you well know, because you grew up in the L.A. area, um, it's a... It's a diverse place. It's the most diverse place on the planet. So I think there was some positiveness Which to it. Which can be fantastic and it can be horrible depending on yeah. the yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, so you describe yourself as a, an apartment complex hoodlum. <laughs> well, you, what I mean, you know, we're running around, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old and you're running around with the other kids. With poorly defined parameters. With no parents around because yeah. all the parents were either poor or they were working, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you're running around with a bunch of kids doing what dumb kids do is, you know, like fighting and, you know, engaged in small level pranks and doing stupid things that kids do. So was it all relatively yeah. innocent? Yeah, so no, nothing that got arrested. Okay, so you so you weren't you weren't a troublemaker per se. No, not really, actually. But we had troublemakers that we were surrounded by, sure. and so those were kind of the those were kind of the tensions that existed. Sure. And, and you actually, are the average of the five people that you spend time with, and therefore, yeah, right? yeah. I, I was involved in dumb things that I didn't even know were stupid at the time, right? And just got <laughs> lucky a lot of times. I think that's called uh, teenage years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> gotcha. I was fortunate that you know we did a lot of like dropping water balloons, like big giant water balloons mm -hmm. off of off of the top of four stories up thinking it was really funny and never realizing that had the these were like big plastic bags filled with water that it, if it hit somebody on the head the plastic bag might have broke their neck and killed them oh yeah but on, it, on paper that sounds like a blast it was a lot of fun at the time because people would get wet and we then we realized the one time uh, that you know we almost hit somebody then we finally you know stuck a thing the other thing we did was we there was a, a hill above a, a road. We made a funny, a, a fake dummy, and we, you know, ran it across the road, you know, trying to scare drivers, you know, oh my yeah, thinking that was that was funny. And so somebody got mad and pulled over and followed the line up to the to the place where we were at, you know. And of course, we weren't running. So that's the kind of what I mean by. So just for the sake of liability purposes, parents, children, these are examples of what not to do. What not to do. What not, what to, not do. to do. And that's why you know I say that. Um, in terms of the way that children are being raised these days, is is two parent families, and if you have, if at all possible, but certainly uh, kids need to be structured and they need to be doing good things, not left to their own devices because parents are working. And that's, you know, we could talk about that when we talk about uh, some of the education questions. Yeah, I, I actually there's uh, a concept that you raised that I have a I have a great story about um, about the idea of structure whether it's good or bad. And, and I'd like to dive into that a little bit later, but the story I have, I'll just tell it now, is um, is when I was teaching special ed in, in uh, Newport Beach, I had a, a great kid, um, fourth grade, but he was a couple years behind in reading and, and writing and math. Um, but, but that being said, he was a very intelligent kid, uh, athletically gifted, even though he was a head shorter than everyone else. I saw what he was able to do was by far and above everyone else uh, ability-wise. And, uh, and we'd have IEP meetings, and, and his mom would come in and say, oh, I don't have time to teach him. I don't have time to help him read. I'm too busy. And that, that type of home environment. And one day after recess, he came in and said, Mr. Stortman, I think I need more, uh, more, um, lost the word. Um, I need more structure, structure in my life. life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just, I mean, 
okay, yeah, he was behind in his reading, writing, math, but this kid was intelligent. He had enough ability at four, in fourth grade to recognize that and recognize the need and was just trying to figure out a way how to fill it. Cool. And uh, so that's, that's something that we, we ought to talk about is how to provide a healthy infrastructure. And I, uh, like you, we're, I was a longtime special programs teacher and a director of special programs. So you have to have a heart for kids to work with those kids. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them, the outlook isn't, you know, they just can't read even with help because yeah. of their learning disabilities. Well, and this is interesting, too. We uh, put up a, a podcast with uh, Greg Bridges. Um, he has a, uh, he builds wooden surfboards uh, called Eager, here's a plug, Greg, uh, Eager Beaver Surf Company out in uh, Tumalo, but he also is a teacher at, uh, at the Brown Education Center. And we talked about his students, and, you know, they, in the sense that I got from him, is that these aren't necessarily bad kids. These are kids who just didn't have that structure. They didn't have that um, that path laid out clearly in front of them. And, and he's able to do that. And we're going to talk about the Malcolm Gladwell book, and I think these are things that we need to get back to. Yeah. Um, so, so with all of your experiences, how did you end up getting into education? What brought you there? Well, um Really, I wanted to be a scientist. So what happened to me is, I so grew up in a single-parent family. Then my mom met my stepdad, and um, I was pretty good in football. <coughs> and um, and so I went, came to Oregon State to play football, be a football hero. And that I had a brief and inglorious career there. Uh, Craig Furtick was the coach who recruited me. They fired him, and they hired Joe Avizano, who I didn't like at all. So. I lasted um, all of, uh, of a uh, spring practice and oh, no. said, forget football. I got, you know, I had a girlfriend at that time, and I figured, I also figured Oregon State was the worst football team in the Pac-10 at that time, and we would, uh, it'd be years before I played, so I quit football and um, was interested in sciences. I was interested in geology in particular, and so um, that's kind of what got me interested in educating myself. I got a bachelor's degree and um, ended up, it was in 1983 that I graduated, which was when the last great recession was. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, moved to Portland with my uh, wife, and uh, who we were, we were just getting married then. And, uh, you know, I was doing uh, handyman work because I grew up with, a, my stepdad was a construction worker, so I know how to do, I know how to build. And I was hired by Serendipity Center, which is a pl the at-risk place that I talked about uh, for the most at-risk kids in the state. There at that time they were, and they hired me to do work uh, projects, which was we built a house, we built a, a garden, and painted a whole building, and did summer work. And they were so impressed with my work that she said, "Well, well let me hire you to do a vocational training for these kids." And I thought, well, it's a job, <laughs> and there's uh, benefits, you know, and, and uh, so we got medical benefits, and so um, got married that summer. This is in the summer of 84, and uh, started working with kids willy-nilly, uh, so we, I taught them how to fix cars. We built stuff, kind of a wood shop. I wrote grants. We got all these vocational tools and uh, worked with kids, and she said, well, why don't we help pay for your master's degree and go get, it, get an education degree? So I did my education work through Portland State University and a master's degree where I got uh, certified to teach science. And so 
I basically worked with the kids that you did. I worked with all the, all, every kid at Serendipity had an IEP. And this was back when IEPs were only three pages long. They were pretty simple wow, things. Wow, imagine that. Yeah, I know. It was actually kid-focused stuff, which was good. And uh, so I, you know, basically learned about uh, how I, I came into education through the back door, just in terms of needing a job. And as dumb luck would have it, I had these skills from growing up with uneducated people. I, I, what I mean is uncollege trained people. They were educated in building things. And uh, so it served me, that served me well. It was my back door into becoming an educator. So I worked for 10 years with uh, some of the most at-risk uh, students in the state of Oregon. And, uh, and I loved it, but after 10 years, I needed a break. So then I quit my job and worked for Portland Public in a middle school, Kellogg Middle School on 69th and Powell with 15 of the most disturbed kids that Portland Public had. They were called, they called them the, the uh, they were emotionally disturbed was the word you use, but they called us the B classrooms, which are the behavior. So I had all the kids that all the other schools in Portland at the middle school level couldn't handle. All 15 of them came to me. And so... We basically turned them into a little family unit, and uh, this was during the time of drug babies, so this, this was the mm -hmm. aftermath. So I had a bunch of 12 to 14-year-old kids who were uh, down, uh, fetal alcohol affected, and uh, a lot of uh, the more, more at-risk kids that Portland had. So th these were kids that had, a, had a, uh, a rough go even before they got started. Yeah, they were shipwrecked at the stable door because of the alcohol. Was co most of these, a lot of these kids were cocaine, crack cocaine babies, mm. 13 years after the epidemic. And so, mm -hmm. so yeah, that was a self-contained middle school program on 69th and Powell. And the thing that, that was so fun about that school was it was inner, inner city, uh, southeast Portland was the major resettlement area for Vietnamese, Lao, Hmong, and then Russians and Ukrainians. So it was, uh, I mean, you talk about a melting pot school. It was like 700 kid middle school. Uh, with, I mean, diversity that, again, we don't, you don't see so much here in Oregon. So um, that's kind of how I fell into education. And then uh, I got lucky in that <laughs> I, uh, we, you know, my wife and I were skiers and I was a climber and I was really into outdoor stuff, rafting. I worked at the outdoor center when to put myself through college at Oregon State. So I had some of these outdoor skills. And uh, so we loved coming to uh, sisters to vacation. And so one day I was out fishing on the Oahe River with uh, a friend of mine who brought a friend of his who I didn't know. And I was fly fishing and saying, oh, you live in sisters, huh? I said, boy, that's sure a beautiful place. I'd love to get here. Do you guys have any jobs? And he said, yes, we have jobs. I said, yeah, but I'm a special ed teacher. You don't have any special ed jobs. He goes, yeah, we have two special ed jobs. <laughs> so uh, I was really liking my job with Portland Public, and we had a um, two-year-old. Uh, we had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at that time. And when I came home and told my wife, just kind of jokingly, "Hey, there's a job in Sisters," she jumped at it and said, "You have to apply for this job." So I um, basically uh, called Dennis Dempsey and set an application in, and. Uh, he interviewed me on Memorial Day weekend after we ran a half marathon out in Spray. I changed in the um, the bathroom in the in the Village Green into my suit, and I walked into Sisters, uh, what was then middle the middle high school, which is now our middle school. Mm -hmm. And I walked in there, and here's he and Rich Schultz, and they're dressed like you are, all casual, and I'm in a suit, and I'm thinking, oh God, this isn't. And did the interview, and afterwards, my wife said, "How did it go?" I said, "I don't know," and I really, you know. 
didn't know if we would move over here because we owned a house in Portland on Mount Tabor. My cousins lived, you know, it was, we were in a good community and sure enough, Dennis offered me the job and my wife with the two kids stopped by school one day and said, we're moving to sisters. She accepted the job before I did. Yes, he'll accept the job. Okay. So, um, so that's kind of. Which is funny. My, my wife would never do a thing like that. <laughs> So, so yeah, love you, honey. <laughs> that's kind of how I ended up here in Sisters, and that kind of gives you a little thumbnail of some of my career and, stuff. And how long ago was this? This would be um, in 1995-96 is when we we moved here, and so 96 school year was my first school year here. Okay. So August of 96, and then I worked here in Sisters for nine years as the special programs director. And also, you also serve kids in a small school district. So sure. I was yeah. at the middle high school. And then so worked nine years in Sisters. And then um, I was an administrator for several of those years. And then moved to Crook County to be the principal of Crook County High School. And was there for four years. And then wanted to, uh, I had an opportunity to be a director at the ESD and work for Dennis again. So I was a director of special programs for all of Central Oregon for the, through the ESD. And then finally, um, after one year there, Bob McCauley, strangely enough, calls me up, uh, who was our former high school principal, and says, Jim, are you going to apply for the sister's job? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, this Elaine quit. The superintendency's open. And so I was encouraged by a bunch of folks to apply because I knew the district. And the district had had a series of superintendents who'd only been there one or two years. They'd gone through like five superintendents. So... Um, Despite my wife saying, no, no, don't do that, because <laughs> my job at the SD was um, you're removed from communities, and that's what I missed, though. Yeah. So I missed being around the kids. And at the SD, I was directing adults, all adults. So, um, so I took the job in Sisters, and so it's been four, four, this is the end of my fourth year, and next year will be my fifth year. So it'll be 14 out of the last 19 years I'll have spent in Sisters. So it seems like your, your path was paid with serendipity yeah it is is that fair to say yeah that is completely fair to say i got a world-class education working with the most at-risk kids in the state before i knew what i was doing and and i had and, and our director who is uh, she's since passed away susan shriver was one of those people who was ahead of her time she saw the value in those learning disabled kids like mm -hmm. you did oh yeah at a time when the public schools were failing those kids mm -hmm. and so she, it was a private nonprofit, and we became the largest private nonprofit in the whole state of Oregon. We had a million-dollar-a-year contract with Portland Public in the 80s, which it was probably like be like having a $3 million contract now, or $4 million. So we yeah. were wildly successful with these kids, and we did it through relationships and by letting these kids know that we believed in them. And then we had what we called our core competencies, which were setting and meeting goals, values clarification, personal responsibility for personal behavior, workplace skills, ethics, and then uh, we, we also just uh, had those central uh, core academic skills. And we were really successful. Interesting. And so it sounds like with, with the beginning of your experiences, you really, you really went through the fire and maybe tempered your steel a little bit. I think I was fortunate, yeah, because I'd been one of those kids. You know, I, luckily I was really smart in school, so I don't, you know, my brother has a learning disability, so I understand he struggled in school. But I think I had a heart for at-risk kids because, you know, I'd, I'd seen it myself, and I knew how to get along with those mm -hmm. kids. 
And so as dumb luck would have it, or fortune, I fell into this um, line of work. And uh, I had a heart for kids. I had a heart for the underdogs. Um, and uh, I want, you know, I thought I could make a difference in a meaningful way. So, but yeah, you're right. Serendipity really gave me so much. I didn't realize it at the time, but it really, I had a world-class education. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you had a lot of uh, advocates that were helping you pave your path to this, which, which belies to uh, the notion that that you were successful and you were well liked. Is that? Is yeah, that fair yeah, to say? I, I mean, I, I'm I, not asking you to pat yourself on the back, but let's just be honest. Is I, that I, what it was? I, I was fortunate. I was surrounded by a lot of. I've had a lot of good mentors, and uh, I feel fortunate that uh, you know. Things have moved along in my life. I, I've just been very fortunate person. Mm. And and so you, you've actually kind of nailed a couple of questions for me as far as uh, your path through education and why you chose Central Oregon. Um, so getting back to that point, that little nice little segue that we had just a second ago. Um, what what made you successful? Was it was it that uh, you came from a challenging youth and you had a some of it, you know, and my, my, uh, I spent a lot of time, my grandmother, my dad's mom, Grandmother Golden, <clears throat> Lutheran woman, she did, she always did, you know, I was raised as a Catholic, so I am a man of faith. and Still to this day? Still to this day, yeah. And so I have a belief, you know, I always like to uh, be very private about that, the specifics of it, but, but those of us that believe in, you know, people of faith, I think my grandmother, she lived those golden rules, so to speak, no pun intended, mm -hmm. and, you know, do the right thing even when nobody's looking, mm -hmm. and I have a strong sense of faith. So, yeah, mm -hmm. my faith does guide me. I, I try to keep it, you know, there's so many people that like to talk specifics, um, and I, I, my, my job is to bring people together, not look for ways to isolate us. So um, I have a strong faith. I try to keep it private, but at the same time, it, it underlies a lot of who I am. Sure. But, you know, being faithful, then, you know, of course, we have the notion that there's always someone watching. Exactly. And and I think that helps. I think it does help. I, I am I am not, um, I, I would not, it would be a lie to say I'm an atheist because I, I just think there is a higher power. There has to be. Yeah. I mean, this is um, such a beautiful place that we live in. And I've been so fortunate. Um, gosh, you know, it's, it helps me through hard times too, those things. So, I thank my grandmother for instilling that in me, you know, and those those values that are that are consistent with um, being a, a Christian. So that sounds like that that has been more of a guide. But what what has guided you to success? Hard, a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. Oh, there's that answer again. The yeah, hard work answer. A lot, lot of hard work and lots of time spent. And the and the the higher up you go in education, in terms of higher up, for lack of a better word, if, as you move into administration, what people don't understand is uh, teaching is a really hard job. It is, it's one of the hardest jobs there is. And school administration is, is really difficult because um, there, there's not enough resources in our system. So uh, it's even harder. Uh, and I know that the, the, my teacher friends might get angry when they hear that. But teachers get a big break in the middle of summer, and, I, and I'm, I'm not against that. But when you become an administrator, it's close to, and as a superintendent, it's year-round work, and you don't even take your big, I mean, I have lots of, I have two years vacation saved up just because I don't get away. So a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work, um, and I would imagine that um, 
you live under a, a spotlight, There's especially in a small town. Uh, yeah, working in Sisters, I, I can honestly say, and I don't mind saying it public, uh, publicly, is Sisters is a hard place to do business. Uh, people care for their schools, and they care about the education. They're super critical. Um, a lot of times, and because we have a very educated and fairly well-off community, there's a lot of expectations that go along with this. And, and a lot of people, um, rightly so, believe that they have some good ideas, and a lot of people um, think they know how schools work, and some of them indeed do. And so there's a high level of expectation for our school district, and, and in some ways, Sisters is a very hard place to be an administrator because there's a lot of scrutiny. Well, and this, I think this harkens back to a conversation that we had briefly before we started this uh, episode about, um, and, and I definitely want to talk about your thoughts on this, but Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers. Um, we might as well just jump into that now, but uh, you're talking about the, uh, the idea that, um, that uh, the people have become successful because of hard work, because of opportunity, because they've been shown a path, as opposed to those who... Um, Malcolm made a, uh, a, um, a reference to the supposed rich kids. Let's just call it what it is, the supposed rich kids and how that they excel in school as opposed to the supposed poor kids. And the difference being was that, well, during the summertime, those kids with money were getting tutored. They had parents that had expectations, had, had parameters, had structure, and some of the quote-unquote poor kids you know, the parents didn't care if they went off to go throw water balloons off a tall building or not. What, what is, in this town specifically, let's round this to a question, um, is it better that people are actually care and, and critical? And yeah. yeah, it is better, actually, than people not being involved. What we know is when kids are surrounded by good adults and have structure in their lives, they tend to do better. And so... Um, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000-hour rule is there's sometimes there's situations you find yourself in, but 10,000 hours is really what the Bill Gates is the world where, you know, it did help that he grew up in Seattle and was there when they had mm -hmm. some beginning PC. But he also worked, you know, the 10,000-hour yeah. rule is a lot of hard work usually gets you there. So it's not just, so some of it's being at the right place in the right time, but a lot of it's just sweat and a lot of sweat and blood to get uh, the level of skills that you need to be successful. Yeah, and there's an interesting story in him since you bring him up specifically in that book. They talk about how, yeah, he was very fortunate to have access to this computer in that day and age that no one else had access to. But keep in mind, here's a teenager who is waking up and going down there to program between 3 and 6 in the morning. I don't know any teenagers that will do anything, let it, you know, play video games, skateboard, do whatever from 3 to 6 in the morning. Right. So there's there's an interesting parallel that, that work ethic and the, the work ethic and the opportunity collided into Bill Gates. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and similarly, back to the question about sisters, is I think what makes it a great community is people do care so deeply about the schools, um, and that's why they're critical about uh, them, and and rightly so. They pay taxes, they pay a local option tax, and uh, and what I mean by just to clarify, it's a hard place to work. When I worked in Crook County as the principal, there was really low expectations. I had a staff member come into my office and point across the street to some very middle-class housing, and he said, Jim, what do you expect from these kids? Look where they grew up. And I was shocked, because, it, and I said to him, well, I grew up in apartments 
and I grew up in LA and I'm your boss. Yeah. And I expect that these kids can go on to college. And one of the great things we did in Crook County was we were the lowest uh, county. We were 34th out of 36 counties in terms of sending kids to post high school experiences. And we changed that dramatically. We, we, uh, we had a lower dropout rate than Sisters High School when I was there. That was my one thing that I was competing with. And then secondly, we changed the culture um, to be more accepting of Hispanic people, which was our biggest subgroup. And then secondly, a culture of expectation. So I would go down the halls and say, Jeremy, what college are you going? Where are you thinking about going to college? And then if kids say, I'm not going to college, well, then what kind of trade school are you going to go to? Are you going into the military? Because basically we set the bar and we said high school's not enough. In sisters, on the other hand, the expectation is that you will go on to college. And that's a great, the community has that expectation that everybody will go on beyond high school. And so um, we don't have to set that expectation. The community already has that. In Crook County, we had to set that expectation uh, with a little bit of humor. In Crook County, the only thing that mattered when I was there was the wrestling team. You could be teaching Marxist-Leninism in, in school, and I don't think anybody would have known or cared, mm -hmm. but damn it, don't talk about the, the wrestling team. Why, you know, yeah. that, that would be the thing that would get you fired in Crook County was the wrestling team. Interesting. So yeah, so, and so, so, in, you know, so when I say Sisters is a hard place, a lot of people are watching everything you do here in Sisters. It's a good thing, but it, 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 now you can't always be completely transparent because there's personnel issues and there's things that happen and people can't know some of that stuff, whereas they yeah. want to be in. There, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of um, things that have to be mitigated and there's a lot of things that not everyone is aware of that have to be mitigated um, and I think that's true with anything. I mean, shoot, even even parenting. Yeah. Uh, you know, not everyone knows the dynamic that you have with a particular kid. But you know, God forbid if, if someone spanks their child in public, whoa, that's newsworthy. Right. Um, uh, and that's not to say I condone spanking, but you know, let, let's use that as a segue to talk about culture and, and yeah. education. And you kind of alluded to that. Hispanics in Crook County, um, growing up in San Diego and I mean, we were surrounded by Chaldeans, Hispanics, and um, and and we all got along great for the most part. There was there was very few issues when I grew up, um, but that's an obvious culture difference. What about cultural differences just within our own little town? And I'm not talking about um, race or um, country of origin. I'm talking about an artistic culture as opposed to a business culture, yeah. as opposed to. Um, uh, even talking about kids with uh, special needs, you know, we talked about uh, a student that I had. He was sh way shorter than everyone else, but he was brilliant on the field and, and just brilliant in his insights into, into his life. But so he didn't read so well. Oh, do you need to get that? <laughs> no, I'm just, we're going we're gonna to pause this just for a sec so he can answer the phone. <laughs> All right. Thank goodness for the do not disturb button. Do not disturb. Do not disturb. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't attend to that task. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, um, th but there, there are a lot of uh, cultures that, like you say, they're not as easy to see. And, um, you know, in terms of whether it's culture is, uh, you know, there's, I, I have a broad definition for culture, you know, and, and people will identify, like you just said, Jeremy, in a lot of different ways is whether they're surfers or whether they're, uh, artists or whether they're thespians or whatever they are that's another version of, of culture and diversity that we have it truly is yeah between the, the jocks the mm -hmm. athletes and the artists it all and, comes down to what they value yeah. 
right? Yeah. So how do you how do you um, create a policy or a education program that addresses each one of these values? Well, it's near impossible, but what you try to do is be as accepting as possible. And one, one of the things we've worked on in the four years I've been back is, is diversifying our programs. I mean, it's no longer about our football program. Soccer, boys soccer won a state championship. And I remember now Bob McCauley is a friend of mine, but Bob would be, he, he kept joking about, because uh, he was the head football coach, that, you know, soccer, it's, it's, a, it's the next upcoming sport. And he kept joking about that. It's been up and coming since I was five, he'd said. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you look at the, uh, <clears throat> the World Cup, soccer has arrived in America. And you look at the Timbers and you look at all the support they had. Mm -hmm. And our, boys, our best athletes uh, on the boys' side at the high school were on the soccer team. They weren't on the football team. Mm -hmm. So... I know that's going to make, and I'm a football guy, you know, by the way, I love yeah, football. Yeah. You, you've got a Go Beavs uh, poster uh, up in your, yeah. right, right in front of your there desk. There you go, I'm a season ticket holder for the Beavers, but the fact of the matter is, is that I just want to uh, honor the diversity of options that we have for kids. So we have art, we have music, it's like all those, anything that hooks kids into positive activities, I support. And so uh, if it's a quilting, whatever it is, um, our job is to kind of hook kids. And the more things we have available in our schools, then we have more ways to hook kids. And so, I'm sorry, you're coming up with the perfect segues. Um, I'm gonna to jump to a, a later question because this is so perfect right now. Um, having taught kids in a variety of things, I was a junior lifeguard instructor, the camp counselor, you know, I, I did all sorts of stuff, including teach. Um, it's, it's become my theory uh, that's been proven again and again to me, but uh, that kids who go to school and learn how to read, learn how to write, learn how to do math, that is just the that is just the uh, platform upon everyone stands that that most people stand on. But it's the extracurricular things, the the sports, the art, the music, especially in this town, the the music, um, and all these all these other things that that. That kids get into that's what helps them define themselves as a person and what helps propel them into adulthood with some honor integrity all these values that we try to teach what are your thoughts on this i couldn't agree more um, co-curricular is the key which means anything that's not just math you know really at the end of the day using the other extreme example is that you know if you're laying off everybody in the school district the last person you'd lay off would be the reading teacher because we all agree that you got to read those are just the basics, right? Reading, writing, and math. Those yeah. are just the, of course you have to know those. But very few, now there's some, and those are what we call our mathletes at Sisters High School. We have mathletes that compete in some math contests, but that's not for everybody. So it's, you're exactly right, Jeremy, Jeremy, especially at the secondary level, is that a lot of kids will put up with certain classes because they have Mr. Storton for PE, mm -hmm. or they have, you know, uh, Miss. Bethany Gunnarsson for art, or they have the ukulele program, and that's why they're there, because that's how they shine. And, and those things sometimes are hard to measure in this standardized testing regime that we live in, which is high-stakes testing and test scores being a driver. Uh, I think what, what one of the things that makes Sisters strong is we've got a broad definition of, a well of what we want, which is a well-rounded education for all our kids. And the last thing I would do here, and especially if I wanted to be employed, would be to cut the arts. And, and mm -hmm. so even though we've had a lot of budget cutting in the last few years, 
I've stayed away from arts and music because it really defines who we are. Yeah, and and there, I'm sure I get a lot of opposition to this assertion, but uh, I think uh, one could argue that the arts and sports are as equally as valuable as the math and reading, and maybe even more so to some extent. Yeah, uh, and and I you know even though I I had to do some cutting of sports my first year here. I haven't cut that there since because you realize the value. Yes. I mean, I mean, you, you you look at any of the kids on any of our teams, and um, they, they 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 just tend to be the kids who are plugged in to sports in particular, but any co-curricular activities tend to always be doing better in school. And what you find, and you I'm sure found it with your special ed kids down at down in Newport Beach is. The kids who aren't plugged into anything are usually the kids who are having a bunch of trouble, mm -hmm. or they're not going to school, or and, they have absenteeism. And it might be, and no, it very well may be that it's the sports, it's these extra extracurriculars that provide that structure that they need. And um, and I certainly know with some of the guys that I played, I played water polo and volleyball and a few other things. But it, there were a couple of guys that were awesome at sports and they were not awesome at school. But it was because of water polo that they pushed to get Bs, whereas without it, they, they would have dropped out. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think what sports do is they also teach you discipline because there's practice and there's ways that you do things in your water polo or whatever your sport is, and you have to listen to a coach. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you want to play you in a team, you have to play with, you have to play well with others mm -hmm. to be successful. Yep. And, uh, and if you want to get better, you usually have to work out and do extra work, which is really the same thing you have to do in academics. And, and either way, it teaches you some life skills. Well, it teaches you that if you want to have a positive result at the end of a day, three months down the line, then you have to put in consistent, focused action day after day for the next two and a half. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the one thing, I know this will sound like heresy coming from a superintendent, because I think in some ways our society, you know, this whole high stakes testing and this whole, you know, test scores is just, it's, it doesn't motivate anybody really. Okay, and I've been to China last year for two weeks. The Chinese aren't going to take over anytime too soon. They're, you know, they're talking about, well, just because there's a billion Chinese that they'll soon be producing more people with bachelor's degrees than, our, than we have. And it's like, well, good, because they, <laughs> if you've been to China or third world countries like I have, uh, one thing that sets ourselves apart is our education system is comprehensive, and they, they have a sorting system. They basically take the mm -hmm. best test kids, and they promote them, and the other kids are promoted out of the system. And so we're the one system that I've seen in the world, and I have just got back from visiting schools in Croatia and Bosnia and Italy, and, and what they do is they sort kids. We're the, we're the, in other words, you're smart, Jeremy. Jim, you're dumb. Jim, you're going to go to brick brick-laying school, Jeremy, you keep going up the, the ladder, and you can never come back. Whereas in our schools, Jeremy, if you had had a difficult childhood and got Ds in school, now you've worked yourself away, you could go back to college. So are you saying that when, when we talk about the math scores between the U.S. and China, we're talking we're comparing our average math scores to their top math yes, yes. scores? And I would say that's accurate for Europe as well. Europe, the Europeans have a sorting system, and it's called the gymnasium. When I asked, I visited a school in Dubrovnik, and I asked him, I said, did you have any discipline? He goes, no, these kids want to be here. Because they sorted them out. They take a test. You take a test before you go into what is their gymnasium, which is like our high school. It starts more like eighth or ninth grade. But they sort 
they sort the Jims and Jeremy's out at that time. And Jim and Jeremy then go become construction guys or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the other kids go on to higher education. We're the one society I know of where, where we are inclusive in our schools. And there's no such thing as special ed. When you go to China, there's, special, there's limited special ed for some of the blind kids and deaf kids. All other kids are their family's problem. That's your family business. Same thing in the European schools. There are some special ed schools, but they're separate. They don't have special ed kids in with regular ed kids. So in Dubrovnik or wherever else in Europe, uh, if you have a kid who's having a rough go for these particular years for whatever reason, and that's, that happens to be the time that he or she gets sorted, then it's say la vie. Say la vie, you're done. And so you would never see an autistic kid in a, in a high school class. Mm. You don't, you, those kids aren't there. Interesting. You don't see, I didn't see any non-ambulatory kids in their schools, wheelchair bound. Same thing in China. And we asked, I was with a group of 10 uh, superintendents in China last year, and we asked those questions, and they just kind of pushed them underneath. Their, so so we're not, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. But that makes you ask the a system of second chances and third chances and, and fourth four, chances. Fourth and fifth chances. Yeah. And the other schools, European schools, don't have sports. I mean, sports are clubs. Yeah. They're separate from the school. And so, Which you know, seems kind of nice to me. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some advantages to it, but we're the one place that tries to, we do it all, right? Yeah. We, we do the whole co-curricular thing. It's all part of the school. And they kind of keep them, they keep them separate. Mm. So I think it's an unfair, um, not, not that we don't need to get better. Don't get me wrong. That's We always want to get better. We always want to have better outcomes. But to reduce school to a series of test scores uh, doesn't make anybody happy. And I know in the, in the city of Sisters and in the community of Sisters, um, our folks get it. Hmm. That's why we. That's why we have all these classes. So, um, once again, a perfect segue. Uh, what if if you could rule the school system in the United States and become the guy, and you made all the calls? What would you do to improve American school hmm. system? I would go to year-round school, and I would look at a four-day school week because. Um, and what I would do is on that fifth day, Friday, let's say is the day off, those kids who are high school kids could go work or catch up or go do their athletic competitions and not miss school. What you do for the little kids, the problem with that system is unless you have supports for parents, then it becomes a daycare issue. But what I would do is shorten the summer to five or six weeks summer break and then have more frequent short breaks year-round so that just about the time people get tired, there's a break. And so you'd have mini, mini breaks. And sh the summer right now is a typical summer is 10 weeks long, which for poor kids is horrible. That means you're just running the streets. That means you have nobody at home. You're not watching, you're watching TV. You're not reading. You're not doing anything that productive because you're left to your own devices. And even parents who are middle class or upper middle class in our society, many of them are busy working, so a lot of times what you have is kids left to their own devices for 10 weeks, which isn't good. Plus, the research on summer vacation is, is clear that you fall behind, and therefore you have to waste time reteaching mm -hmm. and, and uh, reviewing. That's so, always been the case, is that the first month of school yeah. after summer is you have to reteach what right. they forgot. Right, so that'd be the first thing, is I'd go to an alternative school year, year, more of a year-round school, maybe a four-day school week, then on that fifth day, and this is what the Finns do, this is why the Finnish system is so well thought of, that's where teachers would really dial in and t 
talk about individual students and what are we going to do for Jeremy next week and what are we going to do for Jim and Nancy so that they have more time to prep to do more thoughtful work for their students. Um, and then it'd be better for kids because kids get tired. And I mean, you, during some of this uh, theater around our four-day school week proposal that we threw out is the kids were talking about that they you know, are so, uh, so wound up and so tired because of the amount of homework they have, especially our hard flyers, that another day to catch up, um, Liz Stewart mentioned Wednesday as would be a day that she would like off so that you could kind of catch up with all your homework. So uh, if, if you gave me the magic wand, I would do some version of that, and I think it would be better for kids, and there's research to support that it's better for mm -hmm. kids, and uh, nobody in their right mind would advocate for the 10-week summer break and for those kids who need to work, then you give them work experience and let them take the summer off and go to go work if they need it. So what's the history of having such a long summer? It's agri agriculture. When we were an agricultural nation, um, we had the summers to go help harvest the fields. Well, mm -hmm. very few of our people, particularly here in Central Oregon, are working farms anymore. So that's the historical relic of the agricultural year. And, and so at this point, having that much time off in the summer is really tradition and it's being arbitrary. It's tradition. Yeah. It's, that's purely what it is. Now, the only small argument you'd get is in Sisters being a tourist town is they use a lot of our kids for their labor. But I could argue that, well, well then maybe uh, you know, what, you're exploiting our kids because you don't want to pay. You know, I mean, that, that, it's a touchy subject. But those kids could still take six weeks, okay, as a work experience, the kids who are working. Yeah. What I know right now for my elementary kids and my middle school kids is they're not working. And I know that even in uh, some of our really positive, engaged families, it's hard to engage kids positively for nine, ten weeks because not a lot of people feel comfortable teaching that stuff. So if, if you give me the magic wand, that's what I do. And, and so what would it take? Because obviously um, the sister school district couldn't just convert to, even if everyone in town were on board and we converted year-round, well, we have... Bend, and we have Kirk County, we have all of Central Oregon, we have over in Portland and Eugene, um, and trying to, that seems like just a scheduling nightmare with trying to... Um, for sports. For, for sports, <laughs> but, but, even, but even just trying to uh, manage um, people coming on vacation at Blackfeet Ranch, or um, that seems like such a insurmountable challenge. Well, I, I think... You know, we're having conversations. There's a group of people that, since we had our last public meeting in April, that are looking at an alternative school year, looking at maybe having that fifth day off and then filling it with stuff that parents who have been the, the resources could pay that's enrichment, and that people without the resources, we would scholarship them to do that fifth day and do extra enrichment classes like what we're doing, podcasting or yeah. Chinese. Oh, yeah. or doing more interesting things, not more interesting, but job shadowing. And But I think there's a lot of potential there. And while you talk about the, it would be interesting that you would be on a, a different schedule than your partners. We did a year-round school back in Sisters in the early... I want to say it was 89 or 90, somewhere in there. Uh, excuse me, 99 or 2000, I'm just a decade early, um, where we went to year-round school. But what, what caused the problems was that the middle school and elementary school were on a year-round school, and the high school stayed on a traditional school year. So there was added costs for busing 
And then what it did is it was hard on families because some families have kids in middle school and high school. Yeah, and so and that doesn't work. Yeah, so it was two schedules. But had we stayed on one schedule, and, and the argument was sports, but sports, if you think about it, spring sports have to practice during spring break, and winter sports have to practice during mm-hmm. winter break. Mm-hmm. And people who are in football and the, and, the, and the fall sports, soccer, start practicing during summer break. So it happens already. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that would be as insurmountable. And anyone who's played sports knows that that's a year-round thing. Yeah, anymore, especially. Yeah. Right, right. Especially for kids who are really into it. There's all these club sports and um, all these extra sports for the kids who or, really... Or just a different sport. Or just a different yeah. sport. Right. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So, um, so please give me that magic wand, Jeremy. I would love to wave it. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I have been an advocate for year-round schooling ever since I first heard about it. When, when I, I, I never completed my master's in special education because I decided I wanted to take a different route, and it was expensive, so I stopped. But, but uh, during that time, there was a lot of discussion about year-round uh, versus traditional and um, you know, kind of discussing it with my more experienced teachers who've been around a long time and, and looking at some of the research back then is I thought, well, why? And the reasons why we were at a traditional that, that no longer applied, especially in Southern California. We didn't have the orange orchard like we yeah. did 100 years ago. Right. Um, you know, I didn't understand being immature and young. I didn't understand why we didn't just fix the problem. When, when I mean, the, all, the, all the arrows are pointing that this is better. This right. is a better product. But of course, as I've gotten a little bit older and, and a tiny bit smarter, I've realized, well, yeah, there's some people that still aren't ready to make huge changes like that. But I definitely see the, the value of that. Yeah. Well, I think <clears throat> once you move to, you know, the other part is the Dewey model. So, you know, you went from the ag model to the industrial model, which was John Dewey, which is basically you put all the kids on the conveyor belt like the, that the industrial part of it. And, you know, in first grade, they learn this and second, you know, that it's just this conveyor belt and then it. You get to 12th grade, and then they go off the conveyor belt to work, or they go on to college. And in those days, a, a high school uh, diploma, because so few people got high school diplomas, it, m- many people were marrying right in right high school. You married your high school sweetheart. There wasn't, you know, people had kids because birth control wasn't what it is today. And so you had, you know, that was the second r- rationale for this conveyor belt model. And what we know now... and Just get it done? <laughs> yeah. And what we know now, and you know this very well as a special ed teacher, is we all grow up in our own unique and individual ways. Mm-hmm. And some people are accelerated, and some kids need a couple more years to grow up. And so mm-hmm. I think that will be a, a bright day when we start looking at our system from that perspective, which is what do kids need, what's best for kids, and then um, saying, like, like you did naively, and like I still believe naively, that um, that we could make this change and that it really wouldn't be a bad change and that once people got used to it, they would really see that it was better for kids. So, uh, does it really take a village to raise a child, as, as once said in the 90s? I certainly hope so because, um, you know, the conversation you and I have, I mean, this, this was great that I ran into you because I know now of this other great person in, in Central Oregon who... We share some, you know, we both grew up in Southern California. We both were special educators. We, we both served in Big Corona. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so we share something just by, so, so you know, and so now I, I will definitely uh, know you as a resource and 
And so if I have kids who I know that could benefit from your um, knowledge and skill set, including this podcasting that you do, um, I know somebody that I can mentor a kid with and you're oh, a good man, role I, model. Oh, and I would love to do that. I, I mean, I, I spent most of my life working with kids. I'd love to do that again. Right. So, for, so back to the village question is, let's hope it takes a village because what we don't, I, I just got back from Bosnia and that's where they had a civil war and ethnic cleansing in the 90s. And so literally, I was in, uh, on the, and this was in um, Mostar, which is really, they fought across, think of fighting across Cascade Avenue, where the town split between mm-hmm. the Lutherans and the Catholics, for lack of, and, and in their case, it was the Orthodox Christians and then the Bosniaks who tended to be Muslim, but not all of the people on either side were very religious or were um, uh, uh, conservatively religious. They might have identified, but they wouldn't have wanted to kill their neighbor. But literally, they deteriorated into killing each other, mass bloodshed, and they looked this, you would not be able to tell the difference between them. The only way you could tell the difference was by where, if you watched them, where you watched them go to worship. And so I thought, oh my God, how could that happen? And and it could happen if you don't take this, we're in this together. And if you don't have a, a openness to diversity and don't have that stuff that you've talked about earlier is finding ways to hook kids. And, and so one of the things I'm, that's what, one of the reasons I'm here in Sisters is that we have so many people involved in our schools and so many people willing to do good things for our kids that our kids get this incredible upbringing here that you don't see in a lot of places. And that's why I came back here because it, it is, Sisters is a special place. It's a special place. And I always laugh when I see uh, kids going through the program and they're in the Americana Project. They're building guitars in the schools. They're, they're in these sports teams and they're doing all these amazing, amazing things. And I just kind of think to myself, they have no idea how good it is here. Yeah. And, and, of course, they're thinking, oh, God, i got to get out of a small town. I, it's boring. It's, oh, it's boring. There's nothing to do here. Right. I, I right. want to go to Portland. I want to go to Seattle. I want to go to Southern California. And they, they go out there. They have these college experiences. They travel a little bit and they come back. And, and then you see the look on their eyes like, oh, yeah, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, you're so right, Jeremy. We have so many. I actually was on the phone um, with Karani Mitchell. So this is oh, a yeah. shout out for Karani. Yeah, Karani and Sisters Folk Festival. At the Folk yeah. Festival. So yeah. she went to, she did exactly what you said. Yeah. Went away and it's like, oh, man, if I could ever get back to Sisters. Yeah. And people real, and I see a lot of these, you know, it's neat with our IEE. We get these kids uh, coming back year after year to help us with our raft trips because it made such a difference in their life. And you're exactly right, Jeremy. I mean, my own kids, when I ripped them out of sisters for my own career path to become a high school principal, I remember them both crying about and they weren't happy. But it was good for them to mm-hmm. see what it was like somewhere else. But both of them still considered themselves to be sisters' kids because they spent their formative years. I, I just, you know, I, I, I think to myself, God, I'd love to be a fly in the wall in the dorms one day when a sister's kid shows up to the dorms for the first time and they all start talking about their high school experiences. And all the kids just sit around and think, oh, wait a minute. For a class, you went hiking out into the mountains for three days? You built a guitar? You, you played on stage with uh, this well-known artist? Uh, you... Um, you went rafting down the, the river and to dis- discover all this. Wow, I, I built a box yeah. <laughs> in wood shop. You you're, you're exactly right. It's just, you're yeah. exactly right. And, uh, which, yeah. is a, which is a shout out to the school system. I mean, uh, during your uh, tenure here and, and before, I mean, there's a lot of programs and a lot of great things that have come out of this. 
And yes, people sir. supporting the local option, I mean, that was another thing that spoke loudly about our school system. 79% of the people said, yes, continue the local option tax, because I believe in our school. 70, it was the largest margin of victory for any initiative in Multnomah or in Deschutes County history, according mm. to Nancy Blankenship. Mm. And so, but that's about the community saying, yeah. we love our schools, we support our yeah. schools. Yeah, however you want to view it, whether through real estate value or community spirit or the education of the kids, there's value there. Even yeah. if you don't have kids in the school, there's a value. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, be before we start uh, getting into our closing questions, what what were some of the high points and low points in your career? Oh, gosh. You know, the low point for me was about my eighth year at Serendipity. I was there for 10 years, and I just started getting tired of seeing all these broken children kids who'd been molested, kids who'd been abused, kids who um, had some serious um, prenatal um, drug and alcohol exposure because of their parents, and who were really broken children. Um, and I, I did that, you know, for 10 years. And I think uh, the low point for me was I burned out. I burned out on it. And I, I was a manager at that time. I was a program uh, uh, assistant director for the whole school. Uh, for the upper school, for the middle and high school. And um, I, I think I, I, I got stuck, and, and I got stuck, and I was, it was kind of my midlife crisis happened when I was 30. I had, two, had a new baby on the way, and I finally said to myself, I've got to quit. I just can't do this anymore. So I quit, mm -hmm. and uh, I, told, I went in and told Susan, I said, Susan, I can't work here anymore. And she's like, what? You are serendipity. You helped make us, you know, and... I said, I just can't do it anymore because everybody I saw was broken. And so the funny thing is, is that I got hired next by, uh, uh, by Portland Public and I worked with self-contained, very difficult kids. But I had 15 of them and they were mine. And so, you know, that was the turnaround. That was the break I needed. The high point uh, for me in my career was the work um, that we did in Crook County because it was a failed school. Um, there was, uh, our Hispanic kids were not at all integrated into the general population. There, they were, none of them played on our soccer team, which was telling. And we had a high dropout rate, and it was, the, the school was a pigsty. There was garbage everywhere. Bathrooms were disgusting. So literally, we turned that high school around from a failed school to uh, 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 the, the, the language is a school of excellence. And we did it by uh, a lot of hard work and also a lot of hard conversations and expectations. So, and, and the proof in the pudding was our dropout rate went from like 9% to 1%. And we had kids going on to post high school because we knew where they went. And so we changed the culture and I had two Hispanic student body presidents. And I hired a Hispanic soccer coach who took our boys to the playoffs with Hispanic kids on our soccer team. So that was some of my... Uh, the work I f feel uh, most proud of in terms of taking a failing school and turning it into a reasonably good school. Awesome. So uh, what tips or advice would you give to parents who, who are, uh, maybe they have a kid who's struggling in school, maybe they have a kid who's doing well in school, but what advice would you have to parents of children going through a school program? Well, I would say make sure you know what your kids are doing. Have those conversations with your kids. Have open dialogue and trust because your kids will then tell you everything. 
They won't keep and, and let them know that you believe in them and that you're there to support them. And not just the, you know, wait till your father gets home that we grew up with, yeah. like the, the love-based versus fear-based education, yeah. which is, you know, Jeremy, I love you so much because you're my son. I believe in you. And I know you're, if you're having a hard yes. time, please talk to me or, you know, talk to my friend Jim. Talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Keep an open dialogue because the biggest fear you have with kids is uh, suicide, um, accidents, uh, doing dumb things around cars. So you want to make sure your kids, I mean, we all want to make sure our kids are safe. So I just say, get your kids around as many positive adult role models as possible and keep an open line of communication so that you know what's going on and that it's not punitive based um, so that you know what your kids are doing. What advice or what tips would you give to a teacher here, anywhere else, um, that maybe they are feeling the burnout that you felt uh, maybe uh, maybe they're tired of parents who think that the teacher should raise their children. What advice would you give them? Well, I think teaching is the most important job there is. Really, um, you're really making the future. And you only find that out later, like I do now, when I call up and it's Karani Mitchell or it's all these other kids who I had a teeny tiny small hand in talking to or giving them some positive stuff. When you see those kids and they come back, uh, uh, Glenn Heron and I, who's the, Glenn's a longtime science, went out for Japanese food um, last week. And there were six of our former students having Japanese food with their spouses. And to a T, they all came out and made a point of talking to us. Wow. And, and what Glenn and I both said is if, we, if they didn't think positively, they would have just pretended they didn't recognize who we were. Yeah. And we knew each other by names. And they were really, you know, I mean, that, that's the great thing. And, and a couple of them were some uh, rascals in high school, but they turned <laughs> out okay. <laughs> yeah, they, they turned out okay. Uh, and so, I mean, the fact that that was what I call it. We get these bonuses from time to time. And it's when it's, you get a note from a kid that says, hey, you made a difference in my life. Or you run into them with, when they're older and they have their kids and they make a point of seeing you or talking to you. Um, you know, I was in, in, in Europe uh, this, this last spring and my wife said, well, whew, looks like we didn't run into somebody you knew. And then I had two students from Sisters High School who said, Mr. Golden, is Jim Golden, is that you? In the Rome airport. And they made a point of seeking me yeah. out when they could have just played it off and pretended that oh, yeah. they didn't know me or like whatever, that guy's a jerk. And yeah. so those, that, that's the, um, that's the, when, when the chips get down and it's, it's a lot of times teachers do get uh, down because of kids don't do well on tests or kids that they're struggling with connecting with, but um, we change people's lives and um, we and I think do it for good reason. And I think it's, I think it's important to know that, like, like you just mentioned that you're not going to get that immediate feedback. You, you may not get feedback for years or decades down the line, but yeah. you just have to have faith that you are making. Yeah. I, for, well, for example, on my, on my blog, I have a thing I call mental vitamins. I stole that from my 11th grade English teacher who did mental vitamins, and it, it still impacts me today. And it, he just happened to be my best friend's dad, so I, I still I still can't see him. I mean, we've, we've gone out and had drinks and discussed things, but, I mean, during the time, that had a huge impact on my life. And, and then... There, there's the and then there's the many good things you did in your career that you'll never know. I'll never know about. You never know, but in general, you know, you know that you're so, sowing seeds of, of uh, good good stuff for for this community. Yeah. So, Jim, how do you define and live the good life? 
living the good life is uh, define and living the good life. Uh, I, I define take every day because um, you, you don't know when, when you'll pass away. Um, so live every day um, and know that every day is, is just as important as every other day. So make the most of your life and do it by um, being good to people and doing the right thing. And what I mean by doing the right thing, which is kind of back to the lack of a better word, the golden rule, which is treat people like you want to be treated. And actually, if even more than that, that's what we call the platinum rule, which is treat people better than you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. and, and so be the role model of what treating people really well looks like and help people make a difference in the world. Gosh, there's enough negative people on this planet. Let's surround ourselves with positive people. So I define it as, Look for the good and praise it. Don't major in the minor, and you'll get more of what you pay attention to. So if you look for the good and praise it and don't major in the minor, you're going to get more good. Yeah. So that's one of the what that that's not very articulate, but it's at least well, well, I think that was actually very articulate because you put it in a, you wrapped it with a nice little bow at the end there. That was perfect. Um, and, and so, what do you do personally to live the good life? Um, I try to. Um, Personally, I try to make a point of pointing out the good on a daily basis and um, taking care of other people and trying to make a difference on a daily basis in um, the kids' lives. That's, that's what I do. So with you literally pursue or, or try to live out your, how you define it. Yeah. Yeah, I try to practice. I mean, that's back to what grandma practice, taught you, right? Practice, practice what, what you, you preach, preach yeah. right? It's yeah. it's always easy to say uh, the old, uh, refer to the Old Testament, right? And smite yeah. thy neighbor. And like a lot of people want to want to really be in the position of judgment and righteousness and wrath. And I figure that's not my job. I I, th I figure my job is to look for the good and praise it and, and try to really be that positive person yeah. that people want to be around. Well, I think one of the worst things I've ever heard is do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Oh, that, it, that, that bugs that you. Doesn't, that doesn't work. No, it doesn't. It doesn't right. work at all. Yeah, yeah. Like there's rules for me and then there's rules for the rest of yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not doing it right, so do it this way. Well, yeah, you're paving the path. So I uh, appreciate you for, for trying to work on it or trying to... Uh, uh, walk down the path that you pave in front of you. And don't be, and, and also make sure you look in the mirror. And that's why we have good spouses do that for you, yes, right? Yes, that's why we get married. To, that's that's to right. Keep an eye on all our flaws. Exactly, and point them out. <laughs> and point them out. Yeah. Love you, honey. Yeah, that's exactly, I love my wife. She, she's a good, she does a good job of grounding me. Anytime I think I'm doing good, she points out that. Well, it's saying that I think she got from her father, but she's used with me, is that I'm, I'm your biggest supporter and I'm your biggest critic. And yeah. that's exactly what we need to be. Yeah, I, and we have the. That's a sign of a good marriage. I have the same thing after thirty years of marriage. Yeah, awesome. Um, do you have any advice, any tips on uh, to anyone listening to this podcast? Not for students, teachers, parents, but just the person out there who maybe they're struggling with something. Maybe they're not. What advice would you have uh, for people to live their good life and define their good life? You got to have that conversation, you know. Like I said, I'm a man of faith, so so um, you have to have that conversation with your inner self or with your higher power. Um, make sure you're on the right trail. And, um, sometimes it's not clear, um, so so that's where uh, you need to have good friends. And so after you've had that conversation with yourself and maybe your maker, 
then you go out to other people that are critical friends, and I have them, and you share what you're troubled about or what you're thinking about with people that are trusted friends that will tell you when you have your zipper open or when they think yeah. you're full of baloney. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the advice is, is look inward and then seek out your, your uh, critical friends who are people who will be honest with you and they'll help you. They'll tell you the things that you don't always want to hear, but th they tell it to you because they love you. Kind of like a personal board of directors. Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah. To put it. That's a good way to put it. It's actually, you know, my, my father always mentioned that, you know, it'd be nice if we had our own little board, board of directors. So if we thought, hey, you know, I've got a good idea. Let's go drop balloons off a tall building. Then your board of directors say, nope, that's you, not going to fly. You might hurt somebody, yeah. son. You should have thought <laughs> about that. All right. Rapid fire question series. Okay. What is your favorite virtue? Honesty. What is your favorite vice? Beer. Amen to that. <laughs> a nice micro brew. Uh, uh, India Pale Ale would be my choice. Excellent. Uh, what motivates you? Uh, helping people motivates me. Helping people get better. What frustrates you? Oh, people that are negative and they're not looking for the good and praising it. Then uh, I think I know the answer to this. What guides you? Have a higher power. What distracts you? I think all the clutter and noise that we have in our society, that the news has really become a waste of time. It's a 24-hour news cycle, all the, all the baloney that's going on, rather than really dealing with our real issues. People are working on things that are really have no relationship to their own lives. So what frustrates me is noise, and distraction that takes away from the good things that are going on in life. And there's a, I think at this juncture, there's a lot of negative in our society, and people are looking for the negative and they're looking to throw it up and they're always looking for something bad rather than looking and trying to make a difference and trying to hopefully do the work that we've hopefully been placed here to do. What inspires you? Good people like yourself inspire me. People that are just normal citizens that are just trying to do good things and help people out. That inspires me. Well, thank you. Um, if you hadn't ended up in education, what what work do you think you'd be doing today? I wanted to be a I wanted to be a river ranger. River ranger. <laughs> I wanted to be a river ranger. I wanted to work on rivers and be outdoors all the time, and so. Uh, that would have been the job. That was what I thought I was going to do, was be a scientist or a river ranger. But at that point in time, they said, you need a master's degree to even think about doing that in years of experience. And I thought, well, I need money, so I better get to work. I'm yeah. But, you know, that's not to say you can't wear your chacos to the office in the summertime. There you go. There you go. <laughs> what, what is your single motivating purpose? Help people. Help people. And, and finally, and kids in particular. And kids help in kids. particular. Kids in particular. Help kids, mentor kids. That's my single purpose. Help, help people in general, help kids specifically. And what do you hope to hear God say someday when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, that will be the fact that I would arrive at the pearly gates would be great. I mean, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. without a little stop in purgatory for all the things that I've done in my life, um, I, I would like to hear God say, well done.
We'll see. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Well, I appreciate I've enjoyed our time together, and I got to know you even better through this interview, so I'll look forward to our friendship. Likewise. Um, and how could someone get more information on sisters, uh, school districts, or any, any education uh, websites, anything like that? Um, what can they do? Our, our district website has a lot of resources. So it's www.sisters.cake12.or.us. Or just call the sister school district, and we'll help them get to where they need to be. I've also got an idea. Just Google sister school district. Google sister school <laughs> district. We have a lot of resources on that. But I, I take, you know, as long as it's not salespeople, I'll t I talk to everybody that calls me. You know, It's rare that I don't call people back. Yeah. So if people have any specific questions for me, I gladly answer. Well, I'm, I'm sort of in sales, and you talk to me, so there's yeah. even hope for those folks, too. Yeah, that's right. Well, you didn't try to sell me anything. <laughs> no, 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 not, not, not yet. That's after I press stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Jim Golden, for uh, speaking with us on the Good Life Central Organ podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure.